Let's ask God uh, to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray now that we would hear you speak to us in your word. We would hear what you say about yourself as true and you would teach us how to respond to you, the true and living God, by trusting your Son. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it as the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, you've made it. Uh, you've parked your car, hopefully not too far away, a car that uh, probably's got aircon and some kind of connectivity. And you've come into this modern air-conditioned building and uh, hopefully you've turned your phone to silent, a phone through which you can be in contact with people on the other side of the world and access all kinds of ideas and information and you're sitting there maybe at the back of your head worrying about a virus that's spread by international travel and now you're sitting down to listen to the words of an old man. Moses is 120 years old, preparing to... That's not me, Moses, okay? <laughs> I heard, right? Preparing to die by leaving an ancient people a song which is now over 3,000 years old. A song which looks and reads like no song you're ever likely to sing, a song rich in poetic images from another culture, a song which demands your concentration, a song about Israel's God. Do you ever wonder what you are doing here on a Sunday morning? I mean, what we're about to do is only worthwhile if this song speaks the truth about the God who is, not just the God of an ancient people, but God now and the God of us all. It's only worthwhile what we're doing if the God of Israel is the living God, the God he claims to be in this song he gave Moses, worthwhile if in his dealings with Israel we can learn about his dealings with us. So what does God say of himself here? What does who he is mean for Israel and for us? And how can we know that what he says of himself is true? Facing his death, commanded by God, Moses leaves the people of Israel a song. A song, as we've heard today, to learn and to pass on to all the generations that will follow. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. And this song is teaching. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. Teaching about God. Verse 3, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I praise the greatness of of our God. It's teaching about who God is and what who God is will mean for Israel's and the world's history, a history still future to Moses. And so this song is prophetic teaching. This song will be a witness to God, the Lord, even as it is a witness against Israel. 
And Moses starts by declaring the truth about God, what God says of himself. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just is he. He is the rock. Uh, Now that's a, a natural picture that portrays God as steadfast and unchanging, permanent, always there, completely reliable and trustworthy, strong, someone in whom his people can find security and protection. He's the rock and his works are perfect. He is flawless in word and deed. And what he says and does always matches and achieves his purpose. There's nothing incomplete, nothing half-baked in what the Lord does. He's just. He does what is right in every situation, acts in accordance with the standards that he's established, whatever the circumstance, and he does no wrong. He's faithful, never failing to keep his promise, never failing to do exactly what he says he will do, never failing in his commitments. And it says there he's upright and just. Better, he is righteous and upright. Righteous, that is, he will meet every expectation created by the covenant relationship he's entered into with Israel. And he is upright. And the sense is that he is straight. He doesn't deviate from what's right. He's never crooked, never tries to twist what he said to mean something else. Dealing with this God, you know what you get. An undeviating commitment to be who he has said he is, to do what he has said he will do. So what will God, being the God he says he is, mean for Israel and the world, mean for their future, mean for us? Well, that's the theme of the rest of this prophetic teaching. In verses 5 to 26, we see that God being the rock, the unchanging, faithful, just God, means Israel will suffer God's just judgment for their turning away from the Lord, a judgment that will bring them to the brink of extinction as a nation. And then in verses 27 to 43, we'll see that God being the God he says he is means that there is actually hope for Israel under judgment, hope for the world under judgment. Now Moses starts with a summary description of what Israel's future behaviour there turning to worship other gods, says about their character. They are corrupt. There's no soundness in them, denying by their behaviour their relationship with the Lord. And they're warped and crooked, twisting away from the right path, unable to be straight in their dealings with the Lord. Foolish, because they are turning their backs on the one who has given them life, their father, their creator, they're actually cutting themselves off from the source of their own life. The Lord, in all his dealings across Israel's history, is actually dealing with a sinful people. Not a people who have ever merited, deserved, because of their goodness, his care and love. And Moses gives a brief history of the Lord's dealings with Israel to show that the Lord is the source of their life the one who brought them into being as a people and to highlight the wretchedness and folly of their actions. And that relationship with the Lord we see is all of God's grace. 
starting with his electing choice of Israel when the Lord was establishing his providential ordering of human nations and history. Verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. The Lord chose Israel as his own from all the nations, which he could do because he is the Lord of all. He orders the affairs of all peoples. The Lord's love for Israel precedes their existence and is the cause of their distinct nationhood and identity. And that grace of the Lord then finds expression in history, in his salvation and tender care of Israel in the wilderness, in a barren, lifeless place. The Lord nurtured Israel's life, protecting and keeping them. And verse 12 it was the Lord and the Lord alone that they owed, to whom they owed their existence and life. There was no foreign God amongst them. And the Lord was faithful to his promise to them, bringing them into the good land that he had promised them. A land so rich, verse 13, that valuable oil and honey just oozes from even its hardest places. So the Lord has loved Israel. He's brought them into being. He's nurtured them tenderly. He's enriched them in every way. He's been faithful to them. They have experienced his generous love and faithfulness for themselves, not in make-believe or legends, but in their lived history, which makes what Israel will do in the future, after the time of Moses, so despicable. The blessing of God, the prosperity they enjoyed, it says made them fat, that is proud and complacent. And they then treated the Lord with contempt. Verse 15, they abandoned, rejected him. Verse 18, they deserted and forgot him. And they are verbs full of grief and pain, speaking of a heartless and thankless indifference to God and a determination on Israel's part to do what they wanted to do, to please themselves and have nothing to do with the Lord. And Israel's contempt for the Lord is seen in what they turned to. They, verses 16 and 17, they abandoned the living God, the God who had been with them from their birth, the true God who does things in the world like saving Israel from slavery in Egypt, the God who makes promises and keeps them. They abandoned the Lord for foreign gods and detestable idols, that is, the gods of the nations around about, dumb, deaf, blind, dead idols, who can do nothing in the world, who are the very opposite of the living true God. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. Now the word false god there is actually the word for demons. <laughs> so they are worshipping created beings, no gods at all, yet still deceptive and destructive. Novelties with no track record of achievement, no substance. And as God said it would happen, as God said, in the second commandment, such idolatry, such abandoning the Lord, 
Such turning away from him provoked him, verse 16, to jealousy and anger. Stirred up in him a determination to vindicate his holiness and to have and protect what is rightfully his, the loyalty and love of his covenant people. And verse 18 reminds us of just how ungrateful and proud Israel's rejection of the Lord is. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Israel is like the person who has no gratitude to his or her parents, <coughs> no acknowledgement of them as the source of the life that they're now living. It's contemptible behaviour where they receive God's good gifts, prosper by them and give him no thanks, where they use those good gifts to defy him and do what he hates, where they prefer to believe lies about God and reject what he said about himself, where they choose to associate the living almighty God with what is lifeless and dead. That's Israel. That's what they're doing. But it's not only Israel, is it? Actually, that's a description of humanity, of us, of our society and our attitude to our creator. We've been given this good land and life, but we give God no thanks. We choose to think of God as lifeless, powerless fiction. We defy him in the way we choose to live. Israel's sin is humanity's sin. It's our sin. It's just that so the real sinfulness of our sin is revealed in Israel's behaviour with great clarity. And what will the Lord do? Because you see, the Lord isn't a fiction. He isn't a dead product of human imagination. Well, the Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. So verses 19 to 21, he withdraws his presence and his favour from them. He gives them up to their choice. And as they provoked him, verse 21, to jealousy, so they will be provoked to jealousy as they see what is theirs given to another. As they have angered him, so they will be angered by the actions of a people with no pedigree, no history. And more, verse 22, his anger, his just wrath, once ignited, will burn until the cause is consumed, until the whole world is involved. There will be no escape from the Lord's just anger. Now what the expression of that anger looks like is seen in verses 23 to 25, which repeat the covenantal curses of Deuteronomy 28. What God has already and clearly said he would do if they went and worshipped other gods. In response to Israel's sin, the Lord says he will do exactly what he has said he will do in the covenant Israel has entered into with the Lord. Israel will find him to be exactly who he said he is, faithful, keeping his word, just showing no partiality, righteous, upholding the standards of the covenant. See, the Lord is the rock. He won't be displaced. 
He won't be moved aside from being their God by their sin. He won't change for them. He will keep on being the Lord. And their sin, verse 26, will bring them to the brink of extinction as a nation, make them like the nations the Lord destroyed before them in Canaan, where they're erased from human memory. The Lord will do just exactly what he said he would do. He would drive them from the land and scatter them amongst the nations. So rather than give them life and freedom, Israel's worshipping of other gods actually brings loss and death and slavery. But the Lord, being the God he is, and determined that all should know who he is, know his name, gives hope. Hope for Israel and hope for a world threatened with extinction because of sin. I said I would scatter them and erase their name from human memory, but I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, Our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. You see, the Lord will not be thought of as some dumb idol like the gods of the nations. His judging of his people by means of other nations, bringing those nations to Israel and giving them victory over Israel, well, the Lord's judging of his people in that way could make those nations think that they've triumphed, that the Lord is somehow powerless, become weak, uncommitted, unable. And the Lord will not tolerate that lie, the lie that he does not rule over his creation and that he cannot save his people because he is the rock, unchanging, almighty. He is faithful. He's committed to his electing choice of Abraham and his descendants. And it's his word that rules. The judgments visited upon his people is not weakness, but his almighty faithfulness to the standards of the covenant, doing exactly what he has said. And the Lord will not have himself and his actions misrepresented. He is committed to his name, to being the God he says he is. And so he will act. They, that is the other nations, are a nation without sense. There's no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand or two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? The nations who are ignorant of the Lord, who do not know him, misunderstand and misread events. Their triumph over Israel gives them a false confidence. They fail, verse 30, to attribute their success to the Lord's just actions in giving up his people. But their gods, their help, their rock is nothing. Misreading events, the nations don't see their peril. They share, verse 32, the character of Sodom, a culture of death, and the same fate will await them, for the Lord is the just God, the judge of all the earth. All his ways are justice. He will judge their violence and their greed. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. He will judge, and for the sake of his name, his reputation, he will act to vindicate, that is, to rescue and deliver his people. 
the Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. The Lord, it says, will relent better. Uh, it's actually he will have compassion on his servants as he promised. He will show mercy as he promised because he is, Deuteronomy 4.31, a merciful God. But the Lord makes it clear that this is not because his people are deserving or have anything to contribute to him. His people are reduced to near non-existence. They have no power in themselves. More, they have gone and worshipped other gods. The Lord, verse 37, challenges them to see their folly, to see the emptiness of what they have given themselves up to, spent their substance upon. The Lord's vindication of his people won't be because of their righteousness. They deserve the very opposite, abandonment and death. The Lord's rescue is actually all of grace, free, forgiving kindness and all of his commitment to be the God he says he is. He is the rock, the faithful God, faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, faithful to the promise we heard in Deuteronomy 30 that after Israel had been scattered amongst the nations, the Lord would bring them back. And in both his judgment and his rescue, the Lord's glory will be seen, not just by Israel, but by all. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. This is what the Lord's saving of a sinful people will show. And it's what each of us must recognise. The Lord is the only God. I am he. He is the living God, not some dumb idol. He's the God, verse 36, who sees and he acts, acts alone. He has no rival. His rule over human life is absolute. He puts to death, he enacts his judgments and he brings to life. That's right, those whom he slays, he can raise. As Ezekiel says, he can make dry bones live. Oh yes, he wounds. He's the one who orders the creation, the wind, the rain, the wild beasts to chastise his people. He is the one who orders the affairs of nations to humble them. He wounds and he heals. The one who can restore, who can bring back an exiled and scattered people and rebuild their land. There is no one else. No one can deliver from his hand. Now that's both threat and assurance, isn't it? Threat. No one can stop the Lord from enacting his justice, turning aside his sentence on them. And assurance. No one can separate from him those to whom he has chosen to show favour. In his grace they're secure. This is what his dealings with his people in history, his dealing with their sin and their helplessness will reveal. That he is the living only God, the rock, unchanging, faithful, just and righteous. 
and in showing compassion on his people he will, verses 40 to 42, vanquish all opposition, all those who will continue to oppress and destroy his people. Just as his name, who he is, the glory of his being, will be seen in saving his people in his compassion and mercy, so will also be seen one day in judgment on those who persist in opposing him, persist in thinking of him as a dumb idol who will not act, who persist in their folly. And the outcome? Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Now, whether you take the longer reading given in the footnotes or this shorter reading, the outcome of the Lord's determination to be the God and to be seen to be the God he is, is the same. Vindication of his people, judgment on his enemies, the cleansing of his people and his land, atonement, no more defilement, so that they will now be fit for his presence, so that he can now again live amongst them. And most surprising, he will by his action to save his people also give the nations cause for joy. Joy along with his people in seeing that the Lord alone is God, in knowing the true God, joy in his judgment and salvation. Moses' song presents a grand vision, encompassing Israel's history from that time on until the end, encompassing the world. And it's a bold and clear revelation by God of who he is and how who he is determines the fate of all peoples, of all individuals, all nations. He is the one, he says, that all must reckon with. The only God, the one who rules over all lives, our lives. The one who says, your life is in his hand. For death or life, for judgment or mercy, for wounding or healing. He's very clear, isn't he? But is it true? Is what God says of himself here true? I mean, have we just been doing an exercise in ancient poetry reading or have we actually been learning something that will help us live, that maybe will save our lives because in these words we meet the living God? Is it true? How will we judge the truthfulness of what Moses says here? By what we think God should be and say? Or by how we feel about what we've heard? The great thing about prophecy, even general, broad, in scope prophecy like this of Moses, is that it says something will happen in the real world. And one of the tests God gives in Deuteronomy for prophecy is whether or not it comes true. God is speaking here of the future of Israel. So do we see these words proved true in the history of Israel? Now, that's a, a long history. But consider when things look worst in Israel's history. When God says that Jerusalem will be destroyed and the people exiled for their idolatry and turning away from the covenant. Now, God repeatedly, 8th to 6th centuries BC, sent prophets to speak of that judgment. The judgment he prophesied in general terms here in Deuteronomy 32 and spoke of more specifically in Deuteronomy 28. The prophets 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel speak of that judgment, speak of the exile that God would bring upon this people for their idolatry. And what they said happened. As he said he would do in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord judged the idolatry, the turning away of his people. This is true prophecy. But as God says here in Deuteronomy 32, verses 26 to 27, well, those prophets also said that the exile, the apparent end of Israel of a nation as a nation would not be the end, that he would bring back the people from their exile, back to their land, that he would have compassion on them in their misery. And why would he do that? Well, Isaiah and Ezekiel make it clear that he does it for the sake of his name, his reputation, so that all would know the truth about him. Uh, you don't have this, but Ezekiel 36, 19, I dispersed them among the nations, that's Israel, and they were scattered through the countries. He's speaking after the fall of Jerusalem. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions, and wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. That is, their exile suggested lies about God, that he wasn't able to rule or save. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, that is, bring them back from exile, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. The Lord will act not just in faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He will act so that people don't believe lies about him. He acts for the sake of his name. Listen to the Lord speaking in Isaiah of why he does not make a full and final end of sinful Israel, of why he will deliver them. You, that is Israel, have neither heard nor understood from of old. Your ears have not been opened. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. For his glory's sake, for his reputation, the truth of his name, the Lord brought a broken Israel back from exile. He had compassion and restored them when their strength and hope were gone. What Moses spoke of, a judgment and restoration that revealed that the Lord is the only God, happened in Israel's history, happened in the exile to Babylon and their restoration. But that may not be a demonstration of the truth of Moses' prophecy that's easy for you to access. You may not know the history of Israel, may not have read the prophets. And there is a clearer demonstration of the truth of Moses' words, one more readily available. See, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, like Moses, 
also look beyond that restoration to a greater salvation, a greater vindication and atonement, a time when even the Gentiles, the sinful nations, would share in that salvation, a time when God himself would act to show that he rules and he saves his people. And that's exactly what we see in the life, death and rising of Jesus, the Son of God. See, in Jesus, we see judgment pronounced on a sinful nation that would not honour the Lord. We see judgment enacted in the preaching of the gospel that divides. We see judgment made certain in the resurrection of Jesus on all who continue to reject the truth of God. And we see in Jesus' life and teaching, his death and resurrection, that the Lord rules and that he, he alone saves his people, a people whose strength is gone, who are unable to save themselves. That's right, isn't it? Jesus, God with us, comes to save sinners, the lost, the poor in spirit, that is, people who are bankrupt and have nothing to offer. And we see in Jesus' saving death that even his enemies do the Lord's bidding. He's in charge. It's the Lord's will that's done in the betrayal, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, even if his opponents thought they were killing the king of the Jews. They were actually exalting him and making him the saving king. What we see in those events is that no one can frustrate the Lord's purpose and plan Oh yes, and we see the gracious rescue, the ransom of the undeserving. We see atonement, an atonement so great that sinful people are fitted to live in the presence of the holy God in his place, fitted to live in the new heaven and earth forever. A rescue, an atonement that brings the nations joy. For in saving Israel, the Lord has provided for their salvation, their rescue. Listen to Paul. I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, verse 10, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. Paul quoting the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32:43. More, in saving the nations, Paul tells us that the Lord has provided for the continuing salvation of a rebellious Israel. In Jesus, we see God acting in history, doing what he said he would do in the word he gave Moses, this ancient song. We see God vindicating his word in the death and resurrection of his son, revealing his glory in judgment and mercy, revealing the truth of his name that he is who he says he is, the rock, perfect in all his ways, no flaw in his plan, just and righteous, the one who kills and makes alive, the one from whose hand no one can deliver another. The scope of Moses' song is grand, isn't it? All history, all Israel's history from that point on involving not only Israel but the world. But what you and I need to know is that here God speaks the truth about himself. 
God is telling you and I what we need to know and take to heart. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I've wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. Hear that and know your life, whether you will it or not, whether you think it or not, is in the Lord's hands. He is the only God. Death or life, wounding or healing, in his hands. Now, if you do not know the Lord, or if, like Israel, you want to continue to defy him by living in his world without thanks, by using what he has given without acknowledging him, using it to defy him, by choosing to believe lies about him. Well, what he says here then is terrifying. Terrifying, isn't it? To know that your life is in the hands of someone you do not know or someone you want to have nothing to do with. Woe to him, says Isaiah, who continues to fight with his maker. (laughs) The one who hears this word and says, no, no, I want to have nothing to do with the Lord. No one can deliver out of his hand. You will not escape his judgment on you. The Lord is, and he is the only God. And if you are to find life and healing, you need to find peace with your maker. And you can. Jesus came to preach peace to tell us we could find peace with God by turning back to him, confessing that he's Lord, sent by the Father to die for our sins and to forgive us. Jesus was sent to bring the healing and life only the true God can give. So find that peace with the living God by trusting Jesus. If you don't know him, find out about Jesus. Tick the box that says you want to come and learn about Jesus through doing Christianity Explore. But if you know him and you know you are not right with God, well, you ought to ask him. You ought to give up rebelling against him and ask him for forgiveness for your sin. But if you have turned back to God by trusting his son, if you've found peace with the Lord through trusting Jesus, Well, here our lives are in his hand and that is good news, isn't it? The Lord is the one who promises healing, full, final, complete. The day when every tear is wiped from our eyes, the Lord is the one who can make the dead live, give eternal life when death is no more. And he says he will do that to all who trust Jesus. And no one can deliver from his hand. Hear that. Our lives are so frail, our strength so limited, our faith so small. But no one can stop the Lord, our God, from doing what he has promised, what he has promised us. And he will not deviate from from his commitment. He is the rock. Someone you can rely on totally. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. 
He is the faithful God who does no wrong. Righteous and upright is he. Brothers and sisters, this is our God, Father, Son and Spirit, unchanging, almighty, thoroughly trustworthy. You can rely on him, life and death. So let this teaching fall as it was designed to do, like rain on your thirsty soul. Reflect on what God says to you about himself and praise the greatness of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that through your spirit you will give us conviction of the truth of your word, that you are the only God, that our lives are in your hand. You kill and you make alive. You wound and you heal. There is no one who can deliver from your hand. Give us that conviction so that we gladly turn to you and entrust our lives to you by trusting your son Jesus and trust our lives to you for life and healing. We praise you because you are the gracious God. We praise you because your commitment to yourself in the end means life, forgiveness, mercy for sinners. We praise you because your commitment to your honour, your glory, to being the God you say you are, meant that you sent your Son into the world to save us. We give you thanks and praise and pray in your mercy that you would write this word on our heart forever. Amen.